Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this episode. BQE Core is the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Learn more at bqe.com. So give us a quick update on the house hunting adventure, Cormac. Well, as you could probably assume, we were in back in Michigan this past weekend. We can always assume that you were in Michigan. Again. You can always assume that there was another each trip weekend, to Michigan. There was another trip. However, we are currently recording on a weekend right now that I am not actually in Michigan. You guys are dividing and conquering. We are dividing and conquering successfully. My there, yes. So last week, uh, last weekend, we were there. We were looking at a handful of houses, and we there was there was a couple that we couldn't see because they weren't ready and it was Easter weekend and everything else. And so I had to come home cause I had to take uh, my daughter back cause she's her spring break was over with, but it was at the, my wife's spring break was just starting. So <laughs> we pre-planned and decided that because we were also on the college tour that we were going to just drive two cars um, and that she would stay uh, after we were done with all of that stuff and then head, head back, not, it's not a college tour. We, it's the college that he's going to. We were just, we were visiting it. How about that? I guess that's what it's called. College tour means that we're looking at other colleges. Nope. We found the right one. Although <laughs> funny side story here. So, you know, he picked, he's always been really good at environmental science and has always excelled at all of the different environmental science courses that he took in high school. And so he's sitting there and we met up with the Dean of the school of environmental science and we're going through everything. We're talking to her and stuff. She's talking about the curriculum and his eyes are glazing over a little bit. (laughs) Wow. You know, and, and, and she's, she's talking about, like some of the prerequisites that he needs to take. He's got to take, you know, physics. He's got to take calculus. He's got to take, you know, all these different chemistries and stuff. And he's just like, nah, it's like, I think I'm going to go into fisheries and wildlife management, which I will say, and not very many people who are listening know my child, but that is sounds more like him. Anyway, he was always like, we used to, you know, like, nickname called him you know bug because he was always like picking up bugs playing with bugs saving animals and all this other stuff and that honestly has always been his draw to environmental sciences the the environmental sciences not environmental sciences as a specific job but just like you know that kind of like focus and mindset was always the reason why he did it was more of kind of like his love of of animals and so he then so then we started to look into the um the other program and it's kind of more in the mindset of like his path of what he wants to do anyway he wants to work outside he wants to work with animals i think he's watched animal planet way too much and um is there such a you can't really watch it too much well i guess not but uh there's i guess there's the um, episodes that have like the the wildlife you know, management folks of the 
of the national parks service. Um, and he's just, he's like, uh, that's what I want to do. Interesting. That's I cool. don't want to go and like, you know, look well, he at, thinks that's what he wants to do. Right. Like that, that's he, to me has always been a, a mismatch of schools wanting you to pick a thing that you're going to do for the rest of your life. And parents wanting their kids to pick a thing that they're going to do for the rest of or having an idea of what their kids are going to do for the rest of their life. And it's like, you know, I, that was how I, I went through it as well. And I, I don't agree with that anymore. I think it's more like, no, you got to figure out what you're going to do as you figure it out. It's not like make that decision so young that then you say, like, you know, I, and the reason I guess I, I feel like this is, I mean, number one, I've got kids that their interests change quite often. Right. And as, as frequently as the wind changes. Yeah. They go all in on something and then they go all out of it. <laughs> <laughs> not, exactly, not shortly exactly. after that and so exactly and so there's that part of it but there's also what i saw in architecture school which was students in architecture school feeling like they had to stay in architecture school because for for any number of reasons whether it was the investment that they've made you know financially whether it was how difficult it was to get in because of the impacted program that it was whether it was something that their parents had expectations on them or some other family member had expectations that they were going to do and they were miserable. And it's like, really, you got to stick with this thing and be miserable because of, you know, one of these other factors. I don't, I don't agree with that anymore. And so if that's just something he's interested in and he can kind of figure that out, but, but switch his major at any time, then fine. It is kind of odd though, that these schools require people to pick majors, I guess, they want to know who's enrolled in what and where they're tracking and all that kind of stuff, but they don't really place limitations on what they can change their mind about at what point. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I don't think that there was an expectation. I think he um, basically checked the box. I'm interested in environmental science. Is there and, like an undeclared kind of still checkbox option? You know, I don't know, but I told him, I'm like, you don't have to choose right now. I mean, take some classes See if it's something that interests you. If it doesn't, well, guess what? You're a freshman. You can pick something else. You know, you can, you know, there's, there's like, you are not fixed on what your trajectory in life is going to be. And you can try out whatever it is that you want to try out. And if there's nothing that sticks, okay, well then let's check something else. Yeah. Well, it seems like a cool place to be for that kind of a uh, major. You are literally like in the, the yeah. wilderness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Northern right Michigan, deep. right? Yeah. Up the upper peninsula. Yeah. That's cool. And, um, and so there's, and so there's a, a lot that is to be offered for either one of the programs, you know, whether it's environmental science or, you know, um, wildlife management. So. Yes. So. So that is actually one of the draws for this particular school. It's a smaller school, which is great. It actually has, um, you know, other than like his general courses, which, you know, may have up to, as they were saying, um, you know, 25 to 30 students. <laughs> and I kind of chuckled at that. <laughs> right. That's awesome, man. That's like a studio when we were in school, right? It was like 16 exactly. people in the studio. It's a great size. And more major specific classes would be, you know, between the, she said, eight to 12, depending on like, you know, what your major is. And what was interesting is, so, you know, we were, 
my wife and I were talking and so I'm going to pose this question to you too. She's just like, what was the largest class you ever had? And she was, and she was just like, she was telling me, you know, that I think her largest class was like 110. And I was just like, yeah, 250. Wow. I I know because the max capacity of the room of the physics uh, of physics, it was, it was physics of all things. Physics. The lecture class? Was 250. Yeah. The yeah. lecture class for physics was Because then there's a bunch of labs and there was, it probably broke it down into like 30 students or 24 or something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which was, which is interesting because like, so when I, when I got out of the army, I had started at Troy State University, which is now just Troy University. And it was a smaller school. So a lot of like my early, you know, like gen ed classes and stuff like that were all they were bigger classes, but they were still smaller because it was a smaller school. And then the only one that I was on the only like gen ed that I was unable to finish before I got to, and I guess it wasn't gen ed. It was, it was gen ed specific to my degree path was physics. And so when I got to Auburn, I had to take calculus and then physics with calculus. And you would think that you you'd think that with those classes that they would you would you know it would be smaller no it was 250 it's just like geez that's huge i yeah i don't i never had a class that big the biggest class i probably have had was like music appreciation or architectural uh history you know but it wasn't the lecture and i'm just thinking like what was the size of the lecture hall but i've designed a, a science building with huge lecture rooms like probably 200 capacity was the large lecture room and then it really is the only reason i kind of know about all that what i was just saying about how they break it down is because there were three levels to this building the different levels had the different types of science labs there was organic and inorganic and there was there was the biology labs and there was the physics labs and all of these and and it, what's interesting there is that the different programs have different capacities in the room based on i don't know what it's based on actually if it's based on the 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 ratio that they want to achieve that's probably what it is but it was it was like some the biology labs had 24 kids the chemistry labs were 30 the physics labs were 32 it was something like that the breakdown was different for each discipline and i thought that was interesting because then there's no like there the labs didn't line up floor to floor <laughs> because of that right like the bays are different and it makes things it made things difficult to lay out the structure for the building because the floor plates didn't line up, you know, from lab sizes. It was all about lab sizes. So they had like this, the same depth, but the labs would get wider or narrower depending on the capacity. Yeah, um, I think the last four buildings that I've done recently was a basically a physics lab building. Uh, with laser labs, mass spectrometer labs, uh, and things like that in it. So it was all an instrument-based lab building. And unfortunately for me, it was all fixed floor-to-floor, fixed structure, because it was a uh, major renovation, Yeah, yeah, which was a waffle slab with a 11-foot, 8-floor-to-floor uh, heights. Wow. Which, yeah, you know. Brutal. <laughs> Then, then we because did, they're so um, mechanically equipment driven, right? Exactly. In in the yeah. more recent one that I did for Hopkins, they 
you know, it, it was a um, medical research lab. And because it was a, a retrofit and addition and the retrofit was part, you know, was kind of integrated because it was the old children's medical center wing of the hospital. It just, it matched up with the adjacent, more historical buildings in the uh, um, Hopkins medical campus or the hospital campus. Let me, there's two different things. (laughs) Those words sound the same, but they are two different things. (laughs) And so 12 foot eight floor to floor heights was what I had to match. Which one did you do first? 11.8 or 12.8? Oh, you're saying the one is right next to the other. No, 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 no. 11.8 was a different, was my first lab building that I did with, with ASG. Oh, so if you could do 11.8, you could easily do 12.8. If I could do 11.8, I could easily do 12.8. Even though there was far more fume hoods and glove cabinets, you know, all the, all of the trimmings for a medical research lab as well as a vivarium and everything else. And so there was no way that we were able to make the mechanical work the way that we did. So we saddlebagged the building and all, all of the duct work was up top. And we basically created this big, massive chase down the side and just plugged it in, you know, like had, had the main trunks run vertically and had the secondary trunks running, you know, horizontally at each of the floors. Those have to be some big, big ass fans on the roof. <laughs> oh, big ass. Yeah. Some big ass fans. And then <laughs> not the brand. And then, this, this is not a sponsored episode by, by big ass. Fans. Exactly. And the, you know, so the strobic fans on top, you know, like it's interesting is that when somebody's going through Hopkins medical school, they have this thing called the coding ceremony. And, you know, that's when you get your doctor's coat and all that other stuff. And you go in front of the historic dome. It's the first building on campus. It's like the main iconic thing. It's actually part of their logo. And our building is literally like, if I would say inches behind it, it's it's how close it feels, (laughs) but it towers over the top of it because it's, it was 12 stories occupiable. Then we added basically three stories of mechanical on top of it. And then, you know, in front of it, we, we made another addition that kind of matched up with the floor to floor. So it's this big, massive hulking building behind it. And the whole time, like, and we were, um, I'm going to, you know, take another diversion. We, yesterday we, um, for the first time in a long time, which just felt good to get out of the, the house and actually go to a job site. We were reviewing some mock-up panels for, you know, the metal panels that we have on there. Is this, you know, really interesting textured dimpled stainless steel pattern for, you know, kind of like these uh, doors and, you know, the, 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 our loading dock doors that are actually on the front of the building. So we're trying to like make them all disappear and everything as well as just kind of integrating it into kind of like this whole language that we've got going on. So we were looking at, they can disappear until the trucks show up. Cormac. Well, and that, and that, and they were okay with that, but they wanted it to disappear when the trucks weren't there. What was interesting is so the contractors, both the the actual like construction manager as well as one of the primes for all of our windows and all of our metal panels, we were at their yard, at the the windows and metal panel guys' yard, and we were talking through everything. And just as I was asking questions, playing devil's advocate to the other two architects that were with me, 
um, about like, you know, how the client's going to, you know, you know, view this, how the, the donors are going to view this, how everybody else is going to view this. It was interesting because I was paying attention to the looks on the faces of the contractors and stuff. And I kind of stopped and paused and I was like, I know that a lot of this conversation seems kind of like, you know, probably trivial to you guys, but this is the kind of things that like, we can't sign off on this for you to move forward with until we get this whole like cast of characters to sign off on it as well. And so me playing devil's advocate of like talking about, is this, you know, like sharp edges, is this, you know, like maintenance, you know, abilities and all of these things, you know, durability, like, you know, is it going to oil can and like just started shooting off all these different, like, you know, what ifs. And they're just like, you know, no, it's actually kind of great to like see into the, the reason why you guys make all of these decisions. It's just like, you know, we just see, you know, you've chosen this one and then we, you know, fabricate it. We do our shop drawings, everything else Then we fabricate it, then we install it and then we walk away. And it's just like, I was just like, no, this is, I was like, funny. It was like, it takes years to get to even your process, you know, to, to your point in the project. It has taken us years to get to that one. And then that feedback loop needs to get back into the design process, right? Of, of right, exactly. What was that installation and ultimately use like that then informs the next version? Because <laughs> every building's a prototype, like every single one. We were really interested in like why you picked this particular material, but listening to you guys talk through it, it's it's kind of apparent the rationale that you're using for this. They were like, you know, at first you know, we would have just said, you know, Hey, why don't you just do a composite, you know, aluminum metal panel, um, that, you know, goes over, you know, these doors and, and everything else. And, you know, that's just kind of like either painted or kind of like a brush finish. And, you know, we started talking about like, you know, okay, well, this is at grade level, you know, people are walking by, this is an urban site. Sidewalk is literally right up against these doors. And so, maintenance is going to be huge. People are going to be running their hands across it. There's going to be, you know, they attempted some graffiti, you know, people are going to try to scratch this stuff and everything else. And so, you know, and we even noticed some scratches on the, on just the, you know, mock-up panels, but you know, you take like two steps back from like being right on it and the scratches disappear. And, and we were, you know, trying to explain to them, this is why we chose the the material that we did is because, this is durable. It is maintainable. It does hide dirt and things like that pretty well. And, and, you know, so they just like, you know, having that conversation kind of almost gives even the, the installers the insight. And it's just like, okay, well, next time we talk about, you know, things, because we also had them as part of a design assist early on. And, you know, they were, they came up with like all sorts of like, you know, value engineering options for that metal panel. And we kept pushing back, pushing back, pushing back. And they're just like, you know, I mean, you you could have saved a lot of money on these panels. Like we could have, however, and they're like, oh, now I see why you pushed back, you know? And it's just like, you know, and so it's like having a good conversation about the process, um, you know, was really kind of, it was kind of nice. And so anyway, just to kind of like get out and, you know, have that conversation with them was, um, it, it was just, it was good to kind of like have that conversation. It was a conversation that we, we rarely ever have. And we rarely ever have in the process of doing like the making of some of these things with the people who are, 
not only going to be occupying it, but the people who are going to be building it and then the people who are going to be seeing it. I mean, I even like we set up a camera and we were taking pictures from like every angle and it is like, you know, and they're just like, okay, well, what, what like oblique views do you want to see? And so like we were looking at it straight on and, you know, it was just like, okay, well think about this. Like if you are coming up to these doors, where are you coming from? And they're just like, you know, people are like looking at me like, what the hell does that mean? You know, or what does that matter? And I'm like, well, think about this. There's the parking, you know, I was, we're in, we're in a parking lot, you know, but you know, I'm, I'm talking through the process of like where these are on the actual site. I'm like, and I point to my left, I'm like, right over there is the main parking um, garage where all of the employees are going to be parking. They're going to be crossing the street over there. They're going to be walking down in front of the doors in, in this direction here. So why not look at and show everybody the view that most, at least 90% of the people who are going to be like walking past these doors, the view that they're going to actually have in those door, you know, with those doors. And they're like, Oh, well that, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, it does. I mean, how are people going to engage this building? How are they going to experience just, it's a weird decision that, you know, to use this particular material, I mean, it's like a heavy gauge stainless steel. It's, it's, it's dimpled. So it, it makes it so like when you're looking at it and you're looking at it from different, you know, views and all this other stuff, it actually kind of changes color and it changes texture, but it also like it, it, it picks up dirt and it doesn't show it very well. Like if people touch it, it, you know, you can step back and you don't really see like the fingerprints and all of that other stuff on there. There's going to be road grime and grime and stuff like that on there and everything else. And how is that going to just react to all of that? People are like, there are way too many decisions for just a piece of metal than we thought it was going to be. <laughs> Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. Systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want. You need systems and procedures. But you struggle with choosing the systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so you can get back to doing what you love most. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by an acclaimed architect and business consultant, Douglas Teeger, FAIA, to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from a solo practitioner to become managing partner of his 30-plus person firm and then later sold his firm so he can do what he does today, helping architects be more successful at Tiger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in the years to come. Register now for the Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com slash masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit. And when you visit bqe.com slash masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free and it's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core, the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com slash masterclass. That's bqe.com slash masterclass. 
And now let's get back to our conversation. How, how, why do you have the luxury of including everybody so early in the project? I mean, this is obviously a, a loaded question where it gets into delivery models and all those things and what's wrong with a lot of accepted delivery models that are out there. But why, why is it different this time? Because there's so many people um, that have opinions and eyes and the ability to shut things down early because there's, I was trying to explain to him, it's just like you have the, the school of medicine who has their opinions. You have Hopkins hospital who is the actual, like, you know, that's where the building actually is, is on the hospital campus and it's being built by the hospital and it'll be leased to the uh, school of medicine. So, you know, you've got their opinions. Then you've got the school of uh, medicine's board of directors. Then you have the hospital's board of directors. Then you have the donors. And then you have, you know, like you have all of these different people who have opinions about like the material and everything else. And if one of them has like no, like has a no objection to it or a, a no an objection that let me, not a no objection, but has an objection on the material, yeah, there you go. Um, then, you know, then it's like back to square one. And so having it mocked up having people like really take a look at it and understand, you know, all of the intricacies of just that, the, the decisions that go behind it and what are all of the engagements of like the physical engagements of it, not just like the monetary engagements, but like the physical engagements of it and like really letting people understand what it is that they're getting. If you don't get that buy-in here, we are, we literally have got a big hole in the ground. We've got a tower crane up, you know, we we're they're pouring, foundations and everything else or at least prepping the the site for foundations and everything else that if we're at square one on the cladding material which of course because of the environment right now that we're in is got enormously long lead time you know that if if we're not like right now (laughs) getting buy off on it that later on when they actually go and buy it, or if somebody says no, and we have to start from square one again, that that lead time just keeps pushing further and further out that like, you know, then you're, then you're talking about escalation of cost, escalation of schedule, so on and so on and so on. So, you know, it's just, so to, to have the luxury and, and I would say that this is a, I'd say probably about a three-year process just to get to where we were yesterday standing in front of that mock-up. It was three years of of us going through a variety of different materials to get to just that point of standing right in front of them. Now, though they've given us the approval for that, it doesn't mean that it's the final approval until you know we get everybody to, like all of those different people who have their hands in the decision-making pots, um, once we get everybody to kind of like check off on it, then we can breathe a sigh of relief that, you know, gives them the ability to move forward with, with all of this, because then there's the, you know, shop drawing process. Then there's the fabrication process. Then there's the installation process and all of this other stuff. And, you know, so there's a lot of stuff that goes into just that. And that right there alone is probably about a year and a half process, which is a huge unseen thing from usually from the contractor side of things right which is they they tend to look at things through a lens of 
right here, right now, as I'm building this. And like you said a minute ago, then they walk away. And so for them to be exposed to this process of the value that, let's not even call it the value. Let's just call it your job as an architect to decide these things with everybody's consensus, right? The the buy-in of everybody that you outlined, which is like multi-headed client to the nth degree, oh my gosh, yes. right? This is a, a total hydra. <laughs> and so when you think about it from that perspective, I think that that is illuminating to a contractor to see, like you said, wow, like we never thought about it in all of these different ways, which require the sign off of all of these different groups of people. And you gave a, a, a long answer to a, a, a loaded question, which was, why is it like this? Because I think this is kind of the preferred way to do it, which is to get a lot of people involved early, including the builder. And it doesn't sound like this is design build. It wasn't design build. It was a, I mean, the, the um, construction manager has been on the project since day one. So, okay. Yeah. So they was like, they're advising early. Exactly. Okay. And there has been some design assist that some of those design assist partners that we had early on then became the contractors for those particular things. And some of them didn't. Um, thankfully the one who helped us work through a lot of our window detailing and our metal panel detailing and things like that are the ones who, you know, um, are, ended up being the, the, exactly. That's cool, man. I mean, <laughs> and they understand that exactly kind of a lot of the rationale, but then I was also, one of the interesting things was that as I was sitting there and I was explaining to the contractors, both the, you know, the prime doing the work and the construction manager, I'm like, but you also have to understand this, that the questions that I'm asking my fellow architects are the same questions they're going to ask you. Why did you do this? Why did you, you know, and so they're going to start pointing fingers. If they don't like something, that might be a decision that's like on us, the architect. They're also going to, you know, point fingers at the contractor and say, why did you do this? You know, why, you know, and so I was posing some pretty tough questions to them too. And they, I'm just like, like I'm going to challenge you guys on on why we do why we're doing what we're doing, and the thing about it is is that when you get challenged on why we're doing what we're doing, you have to have a firm, very convicted response to why we're doing it, and 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 let them understand you know like all of the thinking that took place beforehand to get to that one thing wasn't just oh, we're going to pick that material. That's the only material we're going to do. You know, we have tested, we have gone through the process of testing and reviewing and, you know, putting in front of the client so many different metal panels that you just can't even imagine how many different, you know, mock-ups we've done above and beyond the call of duty for sure. But it was the right thing to do to make sure that, you know, this building, which is you know, a couple hundred million dollars worth of a building is is you know like all of the choices are the right choice and and so it's just like look you're going to be taught you're you're going to be brought to task as much as we're going to be brought to task and so we as the design and construction you know team needs to be prepared for when they do come back and ask those questions and be prepared to defend our rationale and reasons behind it. Yes, we've got all of the meeting minutes from all of the different times where they've looked at, reviewed, and approved all of those. But sometimes, what does that matter when you're standing in front of it and you're like, oh, that's what we were going to get? Why? 
So, well, the short answer you know, <laughs> of my original question is because this is a private project is why you have these luxuries. And I kind of, th- I, I think it's important to expose that up front to, especially to students who are thinking about the types of, you know, firms they want to go work for. <laughs> if you want to learn a lot, you want to work on design build projects because you're going to get these feedback loops that we're talking about. You're going to have the multi-headed clients when if you're talking about university projects or healthcare projects or lean construction projects as far as like delivery models, design build. But having those people identified who's going to build the project, at least who's going to be responsible for the delivery of the built part of the project, maybe you don't have all of the subs involved the whole time as much as you would during design build, right? Where you're doing a guaranteed maximum price or something. And you, you kind of get all of the subs to sign on the line during that initial phase, but still you get the feedback loop and you learn because it's like, be honest about it. Architects don't have the opportunity to be on site during construction as much as we should be. Or as even much as we want, as much as you want to be, as much as you should be, because that feet getting that information that happens during the build part of the process back into the design process is cannot be understated. Like it's huge. And, and so the types of projects that like you're talking about here, Cormac is important to state what kind it is because design bid build doesn't work like this at all. And it's, it's screwed up in that sense. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree with you. And, in you know the course of like the last seven years of my career has been with a firm that does these type of you know uh, projects with this type of delivery method, and we do have the luxury of having like design assist partners and things like that. That is not necessarily a design build type process, but it's pretty close. And it's also not as adversarial. I think like that's also an, a thing to no, bring up no. because yeah, there is buy in from. Th- the whole gamut through the whole process. Whereas like design bid build often leads to adversarial conditions during the construction. Oh my gosh. Totally. So often meaning like 99%. Whereas <laughs> you and I, you know, have had quite a bit of our career in doing things like, you know, K through 12 um, and K through 12 is definitely, you know, design bid build and it's definitely low bid, you know, wins and it's definitely, it definitely does lead to a very adversarial thing because whereas they're not necessarily looking at like all of your documentation and I I don't want to not be fair to the contractors and stuff, but you know, my experience has been is that, you know, they're, they're looking at, you know, like, okay, you know, I, I, I could, here's where I could save money. Here's where I could save money. Here's where I could save money kind of, you know, approach to things. And so they're, they're looking at ways of, you know, making the, the, the budget a little bit more friendly to the client and stuff. And then when we get out there and we see things that are being built opposite of like what we drew, um, or a different material or a different, you know, manufacturer or things like that, then, you know, what was even agreed upon with, um, our shop drawings, things tend to turn very adversarial and there's, I've gotten, I've done so many, I've gotten into so many arguments on site where, you know, I just had to like, you know, take the deep breath, be the, you know, be the professional and just kind of like walk away and, and, and say, it's not that you're winning this fight. It's just, I can't 
keep doing this right now and you know stay professional yeah because yeah and and what's interesting you know you you want to give the contractors the benefit of the doubt and say they did look at everything and do all their due diligence during the bidding and ask the right questions then but then those rfis and those change orders start coming in and did you know cormac a friend of the show sharice lakeside told me about this there's a book that you can get called contractor's guide to change orders Mm. And it's it's to school contractors on how to get paid as much as possible during the construction process and and look in the drawings in certain places for certain things. And if those aren't there to take advantage of it. Well, I've totally that just that just uh, supports my um, long, long time uh, um, assumption that when contractors are bidding on a project they basically get two sets of documents or yeah two sets of documents they give one to kind of like your general bidding then they give one to the you know change orders uh group and they basically sit there and say okay you know here's how we can bid this i was like oh and here's how there's just enough vague information i we had this one where we had what we felt was everything legitimately covered in our general notes. And so they're like, well, you don't have a detail in there. I was like, we don't have a detail, but we do have the general note in there that covers that all of these ceilings are going to be at X, you know, oh, well, we don't, you know, we don't look at the general notes. And we never t- <laughs> Well, that is the contract document. <laughs> like, yes, exactly. I was like, well, guess what though? <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to turn this into a conversation about that, but. Well, getting back to the thing about this being a, a private job and not having to deal with public bid and low bid. Right. Therefore, public bid means low bid. You're going to go with the the lowest qualified bidder. And so it doesn't necessarily guarantee the lowest bidder is going to get the job, but the lowest qualified bidder is going to get the job. And that's going to create these types of circumstances that you get to avoid when you're doing a public project or at least avoid a lot more. And I can I can definitely say that working at the university level, the community college level on the, even the science building that I was talking about earlier, working with that contractor who wants to deliver a quality project to a quality client because it's a campus that is going to build more things is night and day different than the public bid and delivery, you know, design bid build process. Yep. Yep. Totally. And, you know, like say you've got a K through 12 client who's there beholden to so many different public funding entities. And so they've got to justify, well, you went with the second bid instead of the low bid. Why? You know, and, and so they've got those challenges that they've got to deal with. If it, whereas at the, the private institutions, they could say, Oh, well you went with the second bid instead of the low bid. Why? that's easily more, you know, justifiable in that particular case, because, you know, they're looking for the quality, they're looking for this, they, you know, uh, things like this particular, um, project at Hopkins, it was, they're trying to build world-class medical research facilities to pull in, uh, qual- attract, attract researchers, attract those, you know, principal investigators. And, you know, with attracting those PIs, they're also attracting, grant dollars they're also attracting you know uh press and everything else they're attracting things and so you can't just say well you know we're going to go with like the the 
you know, the low bid and just hope, you know, hope for the best. They're still going to do, you know, some quality control. And it's not to say that the low bid in certain cases isn't going to be a good quality one, but a lot of times people low bid so much to get the project to then go back to what Sharice was saying is look for all of those, uh, those change orders that they're savvy enough because they've done it so much. They're savvy enough to recognize that if you go for the low bid and it's such a sea of difference between that and like, say the cluster of like the middle bids, which is, is always seems to be the case. You know, you usually have like a big cluster, like say five, six contractors that they're all like within a percentage of each other. And then you've got one that's like 10% lower. And then you've got one that's like 10% higher. And, you know, the freedom of a private project is they get to toss both of those out and then really look at the ones that you can tell they all really, truly looked at the project because they're coming up with numbers that are really close to each other. And then they're just talking about like little, little things that set them apart from each other. Or they look at things like, and which is really interesting is this was something that I never had the experience of being able to do in, in public funding funded projects is in these privately funded projects is they will basically give, you know, the, the bidders list to the, to the architect as well. And, you know, they'll say, okay, we've looked at this one, this one, this one, this one, these are the, what's your experience working with all these. Exactly. You know, and they'll, you know, and, and they'll involve us with the the conversation. And I was just like, wow, I've never, I've never felt this before. It's interesting. <laughs> this is a new it's feeling. power. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. exactly. Right. But so back to your original question. <laughs> was accepted. Okay. Finally. I'm glad you, you've looped this back. <laughs> And, uh, we just had a home inspection. Nice. And congrats. Hopefully. Um, I mean, this so, is like I said, yeah. you don't, the kind of thing you, you kind of announce I, quietly. <laughs> I, I announce quietly all. <laughs> uh, only just this, that's where we are in the process. You know, it was interesting that like through the start of this, um, adventure of looking at houses especially in this particular market and especially with the way that the the volatile um, mortgage rates are interest rates are climbing that you would, you would actually said the best was, you know, don't get married to something until you have keys in hand. And it totally changed my perspective of just like park all hope at the front door. There you go. I, I was telling other people, it was just like, yeah, you know, we finally got a, a an offer accepted. Um, and they were just like, congratulations. I'm like, whoa, whoa, simmer down. And they're just like, you know, don't you have any hope? I'm like, I keep forgetting that I'm a Lions fan. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I, th- I think I know what I, you mean by that. Even. <laughs> I, I, if you have like being a Jets fan, right? Yeah. If you have low or no expectations that any positive outcome is just great, but like pleasantly damned if I, yeah, like damned if I hadn't forgotten, you know, who I am and what my beliefs are that I have, you know, like I should just, you know, keep reminding myself that you have low expectations in life. (laughs) (laughs) I know that sounds horrible. (laughs) Well, hoping for the best, man. 
Yeah, hoping for the best. But I think you can tell just by the way that I, when everybody, you know, says, oh, congratulations. I'm like, simmer down, Mm -hmm. simmer down. Wait and see. There are so many hurdles that I have to get through before I do this. And then, and now I'm learning, you know, now that we've got our um, home inspection back, I'm looking at things. And now that I'm learning really what the expectations for the VA loan process is, especially in the way that, you know, they look at the inspection process. You know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, but also very cautious because there are some things that they flagged that, you know, are no big deal in the, in the end of it all. But, but you look at it and you're just like, well, here we are at the beginning. Is this going to be red flags for the, the VA home inspection process? Because they literally want a perfect move in ready home for veterans. They don't want them to have to like, you know, move in and they don't fund fixer uppers. Mm. Um, I've got a quality threshold. (laughs) So they have a quality threshold. And so, you know, this is a, you know, a 1941 house. And so though it's been well-maintained and well taken care of, you know, there's just some things that show sign of age and, and we'll just see where it's at. And so that's where I'm putting my expectations are. It's like, we will see. You know, it's just, everybody's like, oh, it's so exciting. I'm like, I have no excitement. <laughs> like, you know, it's just like, I can't get excited until, you know, there are so many hurdles that I got to get over right now. And I don't like, you know, let's just, let's try not to trip on the first one. Then we'll get to the next one and then try to get over that one. Then get to the next one, get over that one. Like baby steps here. If you, this reminds me of the will see parable. You heard of the we'll see story? No, mm. oh. you probably have. Once, no, so I, I'll, I'll just I, read I, it. I just pulled it up here. It's a, once upon a time there was an old farmer who had worked his crops for many years, and one day his horse ran away. And on, upon hearing the news, his neighbors came to visit and said, "Such bad luck," they said sympathetically. "You must be so sad." We'll see," the farmer replied. <laughs> the next morning, the farmer returned, bringing with it to. Sorry, the next morning the horse returned, bringing it two other wild horses. How wonderful, the neighbors exclaimed. Not only did your horse return, but you received two more. What great fortune you have. We'll see, answered the farmer. The following day, his son tried to take one of the untamed horses, was thrown, and broke his leg. The neighbors once again came to offer their sympathy on his misfortune. Now your son cannot help you with the farming, they said. What terrible luck you have. We'll see, replied the old farmer. This is almost over. Bear with me. Following week, Military officials came to the village to conscript young men into the army. Seeing that the son's leg was broken, they passed him by. And the neighbors congratulated the farmer on how well things had turned out. Such great news. You must be so happy. The man smiled to himself and said, once again, we'll see. (laughs) That's what this house hunting is like. We'll see. Yeah. (laughs) Well, honestly, the funniest thing is that with... um, my wife being in, in Michigan and me here, and we're basically been kind of like either FaceTiming or just chatting back and forth. And she's just like, you know, just reading a text from her and her like stomach is in knots right now. Oh, she's gosh. like, I don't know. She's like, Did I don't you know. Tell how her not sleep. to get married. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I just, I just told her, you know, every time she would say, well, what about this? I'm like, we'll see. And she's like, well, what about that? You know, I mean, we'll see when we see, you know? And so literally that I, I have been living that parable for the past week now. It does seem like the kind of thing that, I mean, it's, 
it's all you can do. There are so many things out of your control that it makes no sense to worry about those things that are completely out of your control because all you can do is invent possible futures and worry about them. Right. So that's putting yourself through a, through a tremendous amount of stress. And so she's done that and she's been kind of stressing out about that. And whereas I was the, so I didn't set a, you know, this, this new year's goal or anything like that. The only thing that I sent set was a perspective change. And the perspective change was, is you can only do what you can do. And, and so that literally is how I've been approaching, you know, not only the project and everything else, but it, you know, was also this, the approach to, you know, this house buying and house hunting and everything else is like, you can only do what you can do. I mean, if they take the offer, great. If they don't take the offer, well, you know, it's on to the next one. I mean, you, there's just our part that we can play in it. There are other people who, you know, have all of these other parts to play in it, but we can only do what we can do. And if it works out, awesome. If it doesn't, on to the next one. All right. Well, I can't wait to hear the next update and the next recording. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com slash masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. Thanks for listening. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. See all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and don't forget to share it with your friends. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at arcaspeakpodcast.com, where you can find our entire catalog of shows. Talk to you soon.